Book six, chapter thirty, part one of On War, volumes two and three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter thirty, part one, defence of a theatre of war continued, when no decision is sought for whether and how far a war is possible in which neither party acts on the offensive therefore in which neither combatant has a positive aim we shall consider in the last book here it is not necessary for us to occupy ourselves with the contradiction which this presents because on a single theatre of war we can easily suppose reasons for such a defensive on both sides consequent on the relations of each of these parts to the whole but in addition to the examples which history furnishes of particular campaigns that have taken place without the focus of a necessary solution, history also tells us of many others in which there was no want of an assailant, consequently no want of a positive will on one side, but in which that will was so weak that instead of striving to obtain the object at any price and forcing the necessary decision it contented itself with such advantages as arose in a manner spontaneously out of circumstances or the assailant pursued no self-selected end at all but made his object depend on circumstances in the meanwhile gathering such fruits as presented themselves from time to time although such an offensive which deviates very much from the strict logical necessity of a direct march towards the object and which almost like a lounger sauntering through the campaign looking out right and left for cheap fruits of opportunity differs very little from the defence of itself which allows the general to pick up what he can in this way still we shall give the closer philosophical consideration of this kind of warfare a place in the book on the attack here we shall confine ourselves to the conclusion that in such a campaign the settlement of the whole question is not looked for by either assailant or defender through a decisive battle and therefore the great battle is no longer the keystone of the arch towards which all the lines of the strategic superstructure are directed campaigns of this kind open bracket as the history of all times and all countries shows us close bracket are not only numerous but form such an overwhelming majority that the remainder only appear as exceptions even if this proportion should alter in the future still it is certain that there will always be many such campaigns and therefore in studying the theory of the defence of a theatre of war they must be brought into consideration we shall endeavour to describe the peculiarity by which they are characterised real war will generally be in a medium between the two different tendencies sometimes approaching nearer to one sometimes to the other and we can therefore only see the practical effect of all these peculiarities in the modification which is produced in the absolute form of war by their counteraction we have already said in the third chapter of this book that the state of expectation is one of the greatest advantages which the defensive has over the offensive as a general rule it seldom happens in life and least of all in war that all that the circumstances would lead us to expect does actually take place the imperfection of human insight the fear of evil results accidents which derange the development of designs in their execution are causes through which many of the transactions enjoined by circumstances are never realized in the execution in war where insufficiency of knowledge the danger of a catastrophe the number of accidents are incomparably greater than in any other branch of human activity the number of shortcomings if we may so call them must necessarily also be much greater 
this is then the rich field where the defensive gathers fruits which grow for it spontaneously if we add to this result of experience the substantial importance of possession of the surface of the ground in war then that maxim which has become a proverb beati sunt possidentes holds good here as well as in peace it is this maxim which here takes the place of the decision that focus of all action in every war directed to mutual destruction it is fruitful beyond measure not in actions which it calls forth but in motives for not acting and for all that action which is done in the interest of inaction when no decision is sought for or expected there is no reason for giving up anything for that could only be done to gain thereby some advantage in the decision the consequence is that the defender keeps all or at least as much as he can open bracket that is as much as he can cover close bracket and the assailant takes possession of so much as he can without involving himself in a decision open bracket that is he will extend himself laterally as much as possible close bracket we have only to deal with the first in this place wherever the defender is not present with his military forces the assailant can take possession and then the advantage of the state of expectation is on his side hence the endeavour to cover the country everywhere directly and to take the chance of the assailant attacking the troops posted for this purpose before we go further into the special properties of the defence we must extract from the book on the attack those objects which the assailant usually aims at when the decision by battle is not sought they are as follows one the seizure of considerable strip of territory as far as that can be done without a decisive engagement two the capture of an important magazine under the same condition three the capture of a fortress not covered no doubt a siege is more or less a great operation often requiring great labour but it is an undertaking which does not contain the elements of a catastrophe if it comes to the worst the siege can be raised without thereby suffering a great positive loss four a successful combat of some importance but in which there is not much risked and consequently not much to be gained a combat which takes place not as the cardinal knot of a whole strategic bond but on its own account for the sake of trophies or honour of the troops for such an object of course a combat is not fought at any price we either wait for the chance of a favourable opportunity or seek to bring one about by skill these four objects of attack give rise to the following efforts on the part of the defence one to cover the fortresses by keeping them behind us two to cover the country by extending the troops over it three where the extension is not sufficient to throw the army rapidly in front of the enemy by a flank march four to guard against disadvantageous combats it is clear that the object of the first three measures is to force on the enemy the initiative and to derive the utmost advantage from the state of expectation and this object is so deeply rooted in the nature of the thing that it would be great folly to despise it prima facie it must necessarily occupy a higher place the less a decision is expected and it is the ruling principle in all such campaigns even although apparently a considerable degree of activity may be manifested in small actions of an indecisive character hannibal as well as fabius and both frederick the great and down have done homage to this principle wherever they did not either seek for or expect a decision the fourth effort serves as a corrective to the three others it is their condito sin qua non we shall now proceed to examine these subjects a little more closely at first sight it appears somewhat preposterous to protect a fortress from the enemy's attack by placing an army in front of it such a measure looks like a kind of pleonasm as fortifications are built to resist a hostile attack of themselves 
Yet it is a measure which we see resorted to thousands and thousands of times. But thus it is in the conduct of war. The most common things often seem the most incomprehensible. Who would presume to pronounce these thousands of instances to be so many blunders on the ground of this seeming inconsistency? The constant repetition of the measure shows that it must proceed from some deep-seated motive. This reason is, however, no other than that pointed out above, emanating from moral sluggishness and inactivity. If the defender places himself in front of his fortress, the enemy cannot attack it unless he first beats the army in front of it. But a battle is not a decision. If that is not the enemy's object, then there will be no battle, and the defender will remain in possession of his fortress without striking a blow. Consequently, whenever we do not believe the enemy intends to fight a battle, we should venture on the chance of his not making up his mind to do so, especially as in most cases we still retain the power of withdrawing behind the fortress in a moment, if contrary to our expectation, the enemy should march to attack us. The position before the fortress is in this way free from danger, and the probability of maintaining the status quo without any sacrifice is not even attended with the slightest risk. If the defender places himself behind the fortress, he offers the assailant an object which is exactly suited to the circumstances in which the latter is placed. If the fortress is not of great strength, and he is not quite unprepared, he will commence the siege. In order that this may not end in the fall of the place, the defender must march to its relief. The positive action, the initiative, is now laid on him, and the adversary, who, by his siege, is to be regarded as advancing towards his object, is in the situation of occupier. Experience teaches that the matter always takes this turn, and it does so naturally. A catastrophe, as we have before said, is not necessarily bound up with a siege. Even a general, devoid of either the spirit of enterprise or energy, who would never make up his mind to a battle, will proceed to undertake a siege with perhaps nothing but field artillery, when he can approach a fortress without risk. At the worst, he can abandon his undertaking without any positive loss. There always remains to be considered the danger to which most fortresses are more or less exposed, that of being taken by assault, or in some other irregular manner, and this circumstance should certainly not be overlooked by the defender in his calculation of probabilities. In weighing and considering the different chances, it seems natural that the defender should look upon the probability of not having to fight at all as more for his advantage than the probability of fighting even under favourable circumstances. And thus it appears to us that the practice of placing an army in the field before its fortress is both natural and fully explained. Frederick the Great, for instance, at Glogu against the Russians, at Schwednitz, Nice and Dresden against the Austrians, almost always adopted it. This measure, however, brought misfortune on the Duke of Bavern at Breslau. Behind Breslau he could not have been attacked. The superiority of the Austrians in the king's absence would soon cease, as he was approaching, and therefore, by a position behind Breslau, a battle might have been avoided until Frederick's arrival. No doubt the Duke would have preferred that course, if it had not been that it would have exposed that important place to a bombardment, at which the king, who was anything but tolerant on such occasions, would have been highly displeased. The attempt made by the Duke to protect Breslau by an entrenched position taken up for the purpose cannot, after all, be disapproved, for it was very possible that Prince Charles of Lorraine, contented with the capture of Schwednitz, and threatened by the march of the king, would, by that position, have been prevented from advancing farther. The best thing he could have done would have been to refuse the battle at the last, 
by withdrawing through breslau at the moment that the austrians advanced to the attack in this way he would have got all the advantages of the state of expectation without paying for them by a great danger if we have here traced the position before a fortress to reasons of a superior and absolute order and defended its adoption on these grounds we still have to observe that there is a motive of a secondary class which though a more obvious one is not sufficient of itself alone not being absolute we refer to the use which is made by armies of the nearest fortress as a depot of provisions and munitions of war this is so convenient and presents so many advantages that a general will not easily make up his mind to draw his supplies of all kinds from more distant places or to lodge them in open towns but if a fortress is the great magazine of an army then the position before it is frequently a matter of absolute necessity and in most cases is very natural but it is easy to see that this obvious motive which is easily overvalued by those who are not in the habit of looking far before them is neither sufficient to explain all cases nor are the circumstances connected with it of sufficient importance to entitle it to give a final decision the capture of one or more fortresses without risking a battle is such a very natural object of all attacks which do not aim at a decision on the field of battle that the defender makes it his principal business to thwart this design thus it is that on theatres of war containing a number of fortresses we find these places made pivots of almost all movements we find the assailant seeking to approach one of them unexpectedly and employing various feints to aid his purpose and the defender immediately seeking to stop him by well-prepared movements such is the general character of almost all the campaigns of louis the fourteenth in the netherlands up to the time of marshal saxe so much for the covering of fortresses the covering of a country by an extended disposition of forces is only conceivable in combination with very considerable obstacles of ground the great and small posts which must be formed for the purpose can only get a certain capability of resistance through strength of position and as natural obstacles are seldom found sufficient therefore field fortification is made use of as an assistance but now it is to be observed that the power of resistance which is thus obtained at any one point is always only relative open bracket see the chapter on the signification of the combat close bracket and never to be regarded as absolute it may certainly happen that one such post may remain proof against all attacks made upon it and that therefore in a single instance there may be an absolute result but from the greater number of posts a single one in comparison to the whole appears weak and exposed to the possible attack of an overwhelming force and consequently it would be unreasonable to place one's dependence for safety on the resistance of any one single post in such an extended position we can therefore only count on resistance of relative length and not upon a victory properly speaking this value of single posts at the same time is also sufficient for the object and for general calculation in campaigns in which no great decision no irresistible march towards the complete subjugation of the whole force is to be feared there is little risk in a combat of posts even if it ends in the loss of a post there is seldom any further result in connection with it than the loss of the post and a few trophies the influence of victory penetrates no further into the situation of affairs it does not tear down any part of the foundation to be followed by a mass of building in ruin in the worst case if for instance the whole defensive system is disorganized by the loss of a single post the defender has always time to concentrate his cause and with his whole force to offer battle which the assailant according to our supposition does not desire therefore also it usually happens that with this concentration of force the act closes and the further advance of the assailant is stopped a strip of land a few men and guns are the losses of the defender 
and with these results the assailant is satisfied to such a risk we say the defender may very well expose himself if he has on the other hand the possibility or rather the probability in his favour that the assailant from excessive caution will halt before his posts without attacking them only in regard to this we must not lose sight of the fact that we are now supposing an assailant who will not venture upon any great stroke a moderate-sized but strong post will very well serve to stop such an adversary for although he can undoubtedly make himself master of it still the question arises as to the price it will cost and whether that price is not too high for any use that he can make of the victory in this way we may see how the powerful relative resistance which the defender can obtain from an extended disposition consisting of a number of posts in juxtaposition with each other may constitute a satisfactory result in the calculation of his whole campaign in order to direct at once to the right point the glance which the reader with his mind's eye will here cast upon military history we must observe that these extended positions appear most frequently in the latter half of a campaign because by that time the defender has become thoroughly acquainted with his adversary with his projects and his situation and the little quantity of the spirit of enterprise with which the assailant started is usually exhausted in this defensive in an extended position by which the country the supplies and the fortresses are to be covered all great natural obstacles such as streams rivers mountains woods morasses must naturally play a part and acquire a predominant importance upon their use we refer to what has already been said on these subjects it is through this predominant importance of the topographical element that the knowledge and activity which are looked upon as the specialty of the general staff of an army are more particularly called into requisition now as the staff of the army is usually that branch which writes and publishes most it follows that these parts of campaigns are recorded more fully in history and then again from that there follows a not unnatural tendency to systematize them and to frame out of the historical solution of one case a general solution for all succeeding cases but this endeavour is futile and therefore erroneous besides in this more passive kind of war in this form of it which is tied to localities each case is different to another and must be differently treated the ablest memoirs of a critical character respecting these subjects are therefore only suited to make one acquainted with facts but never to serve as dictates natural and at the same time meritorious as is this industry which according to the general view we have attributed to the staff in particular still we must raise a warning voice against usurpations which often spring from it to the prejudice of the whole the authority acquired by those who are at the head of and best acquainted with this branch of military service gives them often a sort of general dominion over people's minds beginning with the general himself and from this then springs a routine of ideas which causes an undue bias of the mind at last the general sees nothing but mountains and passes and that which should be a measure of free choice guided by circumstances becomes mannerism becomes second nature thus in the year seventeen ninety three and seventeen ninety four colonel gravert of the prussian army who was the animating spirit of the staff at that time and well known as a regular man for mountains and passes persuaded two generals of the most opposite personal characteristics the duke of brunswick and general mollendorf into exactly the same method of carrying on war that a defensive line parallel to the course of a formidable natural obstacle may lead to a cordon war is quite plain it must in most cases necessarily lead to that if really the whole extent of the theatre of war could be directly covered in that manner but most theatres of war have such an extent 
that the normal tactical disposition of the troops destined for its defence would be by no means commensurate with that object at the same time as the assailant by his own dispositions and other circumstances is confined to certain principal directions and great roads and any great deviations from these directions even if he is only opposed to a very inactive defender would be attended with great embarrassment and disadvantage therefore generally all that the defender has to do is to cover the country for a certain number of miles or marches right and left of these principal lines of direction of his adversary but again to effect this covering we may be contented with defensive posts on the principal roads and means of approach and merely watch the country between by small posts of observation the consequence of this is certainly that the assailant may then pass a column between two of these posts and thus make the attack which he has in view upon one post from several quarters at once now these posts are in some measure arranged to meet this partly by their having supports for their flanks partly by the formation of frank defences called crotchets partly by their being able to receive assistance from a reserve posted in rear or by troops detached from adjoining posts in this matter the number of posts is reduced still more and the result is that an army engaged in a defence of this kind usually divides itself into four or five principal posts for important points of approach beyond a certain distance and yet in some measure threatened special central points are established which in a certain measure form small theatres of war within the principal one in this manner the austrians during the seven years war generally placed the main body of their army in four or five posts in the mountains of lower silesia whilst a small almost independent corps organized for itself a similar system of defence in upper silesia now the further such a defensive system diverges from direct covering the more it must call to its assistance mobility open bracket active defence close bracket and even offensive means certain corps are considered reserves besides which one post hastens to send to the help of another all the troops it can spare this assistance may be rendered either by hastening up directly from the rear to reinforce and re-establish the passive defence or by attacking the enemy in flank or even by menacing his line of retreat if the assailant threatens the flank of a post not with direct attack but only by a position through which he can act upon the communications of this post then either the corps which has been advanced for this purpose must be attacked in earnest or the way of reprisal must be resorted to by acting in turn on the enemy's communications we see therefore that however passive this defence is in the leading ideas on which it is based still it must comprise many active means and in its organisation may be forewarned in many ways against complicated events usually those defences pass for the best which make the most use of active or even offensive means but this depends in great part on the nature of the country the characteristics of the troops and even on the talent of the general partly we are also very prone in general to expect too much from movement and other auxiliary measures of an active nature and to place too little reliance on the local defence of a formidable natural obstacle we think we have thus sufficiently explained what we understand by an extended line of defence and we now turn to the third auxiliary means the placing ourselves in front of the enemy by a rapid march to a flank this means is necessarily one of those provided for that defence of a country which we are now considering in the first place the defender even with the most extended position often cannot guard all the approaches to his country which are menaced next in many cases he must be ready to prepare with the bulk of his forces to any posts upon which the bulk of the enemy's force is about to be thrown as otherwise those posts would be too easily overpowered 
Lastly, a general who has an aversion to confining his army to a passive resistance in an extended position must seek to attain his object, the protection of his country, by rapid, well-planned and well-conducted movements. The greater the spaces which he leaves exposed, the greater the talent required in planning the movements in order to arrive at anywhere at the right moment of time. The natural consequence of striving to do this is that in such a case, positions which afford sufficient advantages to make an enemy give up all idea of an attack as soon as our army, or only a portion of it, reaches them are sought for and prepared in all directions. As these positions are again and again occupied, and all depends on reaching the same in right time, they are in a certain measure the vowels of all this method of carrying on war, which on that account have been termed a war of posts. Just as an extended position and the relative resistance in war without great decisions do not present the dangers which are inherent in its original nature, so in the same manner the intercepting of the enemy in front by a march to a flank is not so hazardous as it would be in the immediate expectation of a great decision. To attempt at the last moment in greatest haste, open bracket, by a lateral movement, close bracket, to thrust in an army in front of an adversary of determined character who is both able and willing to deal heavy blows and has no scruples about an expenditure of forces would be half-way to a most decisive disaster, for against an unhesitating blow delivered with the enemy's whole strength, such running and stumbling into a position would not do. But against an opponent who, instead of taking up his work with his whole hand, uses only the tips of his fingers, who does not know how to make use of a great result, or rather of the opening for one, who only seeks a trifling advantage, but at small expense, against such an opponent, this kind of resistance certainly may be applied with effect. A natural consequence is that this means also, in general, occurs oftener in the last half of a campaign than at its commencement. Here also the general staff has an opportunity of displaying its topographical knowledge in framing a system of combined measures, connected with the choice and preparation of the positions, and the roads leading to them. When the whole object of one party is to gain, in the end, a certain point, and the whole object of his adversary, on the other hand, is to prevent his doing so, then both parties are often obliged to make their movements under the eyes of each other. For this reason, these movements will be made with a degree of precaution and precision not otherwise required. Formerly, before the mass of an army was formed of independent divisions, and even on the march, was always regarded as an indivisible whole, this precaution and precision was attended with much more formality, and with the copious use of tactical skill. On these occasions, certainly, single brigades were often obliged to leave the general line of battle to secure peculiar points and act an independent part until the army arrived, but these were and continued anomalous proceedings, and the aim in the order of march generally was to move the army from one point to another as a whole, preserving its normal formation, and avoiding such exceptional proceedings as the above as far as possible. Now that the parts of the main body of an army are subdivided again into independent bodies, and these bodies can venture to enter into an engagement with the mass of the enemy's army, provided the rest of the force of which it is a member is sufficiently near to carry it on and finish it, now such a flank march is attended with less difficulty even under the eye of the enemy. What formerly could only be effected through the actual mechanism of the order of march can now be done by starting single divisions at an earlier hour, by hastening the march of others, and by the greater freedom in the employment of the whole. By the means of defence just considered, the assailant can be prevented from taking any fortress, from occupying any important extent of country, or capturing magazines, and he will be prevented if, in every direction, 
combats are offered to him in which he can see little probability of success or too great danger of a reaction in case of failure or in general an expenditure of force too great for his object in existing relations if now the defender succeeds in this triumph of his art and skill and the assailant wherever he turns his eyes sees prudent preparations through which he is cut off from any prospect of attaining his modest wishes then the offensive principle often seeks to escape from the difficulty in the satisfaction of the mere honour of its arms the gain of some combat of respectable importance gives the arms of the victor a semblance of superiority appeases the vanity of the general of the court of the army and the people and thus satisfies to a certain extent the expectations which are naturally always raised when the offensive is assumed an advantageous combat of some importance merely for the sake of the victory and some trophies becomes therefore the last hope of the assailant no one must suppose that here we involve ourselves in a contradiction for we contend that we still continue within our own supposition that the good measures of the defender have deprived the assailant of all expectation of attaining any one of those other objects by means of a successful combat to warrant that expectation two conditions are required that is a favourable termination to the combat and next that the result shall lead directly to the attainment of one of those objects the first may very well take place without the second and therefore the defender's corps and posts singly are much more frequently in danger of getting involved in disadvantageous combats if the assailant merely aims at the honour of the battlefield then if he connects with that a view to further advantages as well if we place ourselves in down's situation and with his way of thinking then his venturing on the surprise at hochkirk does not appear inconsistent with his character as long as we suppose him aiming at nothing more than the trophies of the day but a victory rich in results which would have compelled the king to abandon dresden and nice appears an entirely different problem one with which he would not have been inclined to meddle let it not be imagined that these are trifling or idle distractions we have on the contrary now before us one of the deep-rooted leading principles of war the signification of combat is its very soul in strategy and we cannot too often repeat that in strategy the leading events always proceed from the ultimate views of the two parties as it were from a conclusion of the whole train of ideas this is why there may be such a difference strategically between one battle and another that they can hardly be looked upon as the same means now although the fruitless victory of the assailant can hardly be considered any serious injury to the defence still as the defender will not willingly concede even this advantage particularly as we never know what accident may also be connected with it therefore the defender requires to keep an incessant watch upon the situation of all his corps and posts no doubt here all greatly depends on the leaders of those corps making suitable dispositions but any one of them may be led into an unavoidable catastrophe by injudicious orders imposed on him by the general-in-chief who is not reminded here of folk's corps at landshut and of finks at maxon in both cases frederick the great reckoned too much on customary ideas it was impossible that he could suppose ten thousand men capable of successfully resisting thirty thousand in the position of lancet or that fink could resist a superior force pouring in and overwhelming him on all sides but he thought the strength of the position of lancet would be accepted like a bill of exchange as heretofore and that down would see in the demonstration against his flank sufficient reason to exchange his uncomfortable position in saxony for the more comfortable one in bohemia he misjudged loudon in one case and down in the other and therein lies the error in these measures but irrespective of such errors into which even generals may fall who are not so proud daring and obstinate 
as Frederick the Great in some of his proceedings may certainly be termed, there is always in respect to the subject we are now considering a great difficulty in this way that the General-in-Chief cannot always expect all he desires from the sagacity, goodwill, courage and firmness of character of his corps commanders. He cannot therefore leave everything to their good judgment. He must prescribe rules on many points by which their course of action being restricted may easily become inconsistent with the circumstances of the moment. This is, however, an unavoidable inconvenience. Without an imperious commanding will, the influence of which penetrates through the whole army, war cannot be well conducted, and whoever would follow the practice of always expecting the best from his subordinates would, from that very reason, be quite unfit for a good commander of an army. Therefore, the situation of every corps and post must be forever clearly in view to prevent any of them being unexpectedly drawn into a catastrophe. The aim of all these efforts is to preserve the status quo. The more fortunate and successful these efforts are, the longer will the war last at the same point, but the longer the war continues at one point, the greater become the cares for subsistence. In place of collections and contributions from the country, a system of subsistence from magazines commences at once or in a very short time. In place of country wagons being collected upon each occasion, the formation, more or less, of a regular transport takes place, composed either of carriages of the country or of those belonging to the army. In short, there arises an approach to that regular system of feeding troops from magazines, of which we have already treated in the 14th chapter, open bracket, on subsistence, close bracket. At the same time, it is not this which exercises a great influence on this mode of conducting war, for as this mode by its object and character is in fact already tied down to a limited space, therefore the question of subsistence may very well have a part in determining its action, and will do so in most cases without altering the general character of the war. On the other hand, the actions of the belligerents mutually against the lines of communication gains a much greater importance for two reasons. First, because in such campaigns, there being no measure of a great and comprehensive kind, generals must apply their energies to those of an inferior order. And secondly, because here there is time enough to wait for the effect of this means. The security of his line of communications is therefore specially important to the defender, for although it is true that its interruption cannot be an object of the hostile operations which take place, yet it might compel him to retreat, and thus to leave other objects open to attack. All the measures having for their object the protection of the area of the theatre of war itself must naturally also have the effect of covering the lines of communication. Their security is therefore in part provided for in that way, and we have only to observe that it is a principal condition in fixing upon a position. A special means of security consists in the bodies of troops, both large and small, escorting convoys. First, the most extended positions are not sufficient to secure the lines of communication, and next, such an escort is particularly necessary when the general wishes to avoid a very extended position. Therefore, we find in Tempelhof's History of the Seven Years' War, instances without end in which Frederick the Great caused his bread and flour wagons to be escorted by single regiments of infantry or cavalry, sometimes also by whole brigades. On the Austrian side, we nowhere find mention of the same thing, which certainly may be partly accounted for in this way, that they had no such circumstantial historian on their side. But in part, it is also to be ascribed just to this, that they always took up much more extended positions. Having now touched upon the four efforts which form the foundation of a defensive that does not aim at a decision, and which are at the same time altogether free upon the whole from all offensive elements, we must now say something of the offensive means with which they may become more or less mixed up, in a certain measure flavoured. These offensive means are chiefly, one, 
operating against the enemy's communications, under which we likewise include enterprises against his places of supply. 2. Diversions and incursions within the enemy's territory. 3. Attacks on the enemy's corps and posts, and even upon his main body under favourable circumstances, or the threat only of such intention. The first of these means is incessantly in action in all campaigns of this kind, but in a certain measure quite quietly without actually making its appearance. Every suitable position for the defender derives a great part of its efficacy from the disquietude which it causes in the assailant in connection with his communications, and as the question of subsistence in such warfare becomes, as we have already observed, one of vital importance affecting the assailant equally, therefore, through this apprehension of offensive action, possibly resulting from the enemy's position, a great part of the strategic web is determined, as we shall again find in treating of the attack. Not only this general influence proceeding from the choice of positions, which, like pressure in mechanics, produces an effect invisibly, but also an actual offensive movement, with part of the army against the enemy's lines of communication, comes within the compass of such a defensive but that it may be done with effect, the situation of the lines of communication, the nature of the country, and the peculiar qualities of the troops must be specially propitious to the undertaking. Incursions into the enemy's country, which have as their object reprisals or levying contributions, cannot properly be regarded as defensive means. They are rather true offensive means. But they are usually combined with the object of a real diversion, which may be regarded as a real defensive measure, as it is intended to weaken the enemy's force opposed to us. But as the above means may be used just as well by the assailant, and in itself is a real attack, we therefore think more suitable to leave its further examination for the next book. Accordingly, we shall only count it in here, in order to render a full account of the arsenal of small offensive arms, belonging to the defender of a theatre of war. And for the present, merely add that, in extent and importance, it may attain to such a point as to give the whole war the appearance, and along with that the honour, of the offensive. Of this nature are Frederick the Great's enterprises in Poland, Bohemia and Franconia before the campaign of 1759. His campaign itself is plainly a pure defence. These incursions into the enemy's territory, however, gave it the appearance of an aggression, which perhaps had a special value on account of the moral effect. An attack on one of the enemy's corps or on his main body must always be kept in view as a necessary complement of the whole defence whenever the aggressor takes the matter too easily and on that account shows himself very defenceless at particular points. Under this silent condition the whole action takes place, but here also the defender in the same way, as in operating against the communications of the enemy, may go a step further in the province of the offensive, and just as well as his adversary may make it his business to lie in wait for a favourable stroke. In order to ensure a result in this field, he must either be very decidedly superior in force to his opponent, which certainly is inconsistent with the defensive in general, but still may happen, or he must have a method and the talent of keeping his forces more concentrated and make up by activity and mobility for the danger which he incurs in other respects. The first was Down's case in the Seven Years' War, the latter the case of Frederick the Great. Still, we hardly ever see Down's offensive make its appearance except when Frederick the Great invited it by excessive boldness and a display of contempt for him. Open bracket, Hockirk, Maxon, Lansut, close bracket. On the other hand, we see Frederick the Great almost constantly on the move in order to beat one or other of Down's corps with his main body. He certainly seldom succeeded, at least the results were never great, because Down, in addition to his great superiority in numbers, had also a rare degree of prudence and caution. But we must not suppose, therefore, that the king's attempts were altogether fruitless. In these attempts, 
lay rather a very effectual resistance for the care and fatigue which his adversary had to undergo in order to avoid fighting at a disadvantage neutralized those forces which would otherwise have aided in advancing the offensive action let us only call to mind the campaign of seventeen sixty in silesia where down and the russians out of sheer apprehension of being attacked and beaten by the king first here and then there could never succeed in making one step in advance end of chapter thirty part one recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia